Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, your host, and this is our show where we talk about what's in the headlines. And this week, I'm super excited because this week is a week that the Nobel Prizes were awarded. And the news is that the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, who were recognized for their work in developing the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing tools. So now let me introduce our two experts, A6NZ general partners, Vijay Pandey and Jorge Conde, or as we've affectionately called them here, Pandey and Conde, or Conde and Pandey. And we are here to do a quick pulse check on where we are, tease apart what's hype, what's real, and really just talk about this news and the long arc and history of innovation. So first quick question before we talk about what CRISPR is and the specifics, I have kind of a weird question, which is I was very surprised that CRISPR, which is a gene editing tool, and I think of as like biology, was awarded in the Nobel Prize for chemistry. That was surprising to me. Yeah, you know, this is a question that comes up a lot. And having been a professor of chemistry, but also uh, structural biology and uh, some other things, you know, this is always a fight because there is no Nobel Prize in biology. You've got medicine, you've got chemistry. And, you know, these days, research that's not directly like a drug now or a disease now that's molecular. Molecular is chemistry, basic research is chemistry. I think chemistry actually is the right place for this. There may be a time where there may be another Nobel Prize for CRISPR for maybe creating something that is a therapeutic, but that's not where we are right now. Yeah. And also, I mean, technically the work is probably biochemistry, right? If we wanted to be very technical about it. Well, go ahead and be technical about it. So CRISPR obviously stands for, it's an acronym for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, i.e. CRISPR, basically a microbial immune system that is used to prevent infection by virus. That's a very high level summary. Can you guys actually explain it and tell me why it is technically biochemistry? Yeah, so CRISPR is really originally part of a bacterial immune system. It's something bacteria uses to fight off pathogens. And one of the exciting things about this is that this wasn't necessarily ever really intended by nature. There was no evolutionary selection pressure for this to be a gene editing system in humans. Mm -hmm. And so what's intriguing here is the realization that this sort of bacterial immune system aspect can be used for gene editing. And that realization, I think, is very clever and a great example of where basic research can sort of take you in directions that you never would have expected. Yeah, like any scientific discovery, it has a long history and a lot of mothers and fathers, right? And so I think the recognition here for Doudna and Charpentier is extraordinarily well-deserved, but is sort of the punctuation or the exclamation point on a very, very long sentence over many, many years. Someone would even argue that CRISPR, while only eight years old, goes back all the way to the work on zinc fingers and gene editing via zinc fingers. Yeah, I mean, gene editing has been something that people have been looking at for decades. And actually, in the 80s, people were hoping that there would be therapeutics driven by gene editing and gene delivery. And that didn't pan out for a variety of technical reasons, although, uh, you know, it's still being looked into in different ways. What's fascinating about this is that CRISPR was sort of a very serendipitous discovery. If you go back in the history, they first noticed this phenomenon in bacteria, as the acronym implies, by seeing these weird repeats in the genetic code for certain specific bacteria. And it, nobody really knew what it was, and it took a long time to figure out the why. So in that regard, it was very much a discovery. Now, the part that makes this an innovation where you jump from discovery to engineering is the fact that Doudna and Charpentier were able to essentially harness, once they figured out what it was used for, 
by bacteria to fight against phages or viruses. They were able to harness that to use it as a very precision cutting tool. And that's where sort of the engineered component comes in. But it was engineering on the tail of discovery, which I think is a very remarkable thing. Before we kind of break down more of why it matters and sort of the applications, let's just spend a couple more minutes on the story because I think this is super interesting and worth talking about because it is a meta story, as you both observe, about how basic science becomes engineering, which is obviously a huge theme we care about. So Nature, and I'll link to the article in the show notes, quotes George Church, who we've obviously had on this podcast, and Jorge, he was a co-founder of yours on a previous startup. And, you know, for all the controversy that there has been in CRISPR in terms of attribution and who deserves what, it's interesting because the article quotes how Church actually agrees with how the award was divvied up, because despite the amazing work his lab did and Fang Zhang's lab did, which adapted the system to work in mammalian cells, which is what opened the door to treating human disease, Church says that work could be classified as engineering and invention rather than scientific discovery, which is why he thinks this was a great choice. I think that's exactly spot on. You know, I remember vividly when CRISPR was quote unquote discovered or at least described in the work that Dauda and Cherpentier did in what was it, 2012, it already at that very moment started to get sort of the whispers of there's a Nobel Prize winning discovery. And so it hasn't been a question if CRISPR would get the Nobel Prize. I think it's been a question more of, you know, when, how, and who. My favorite analogy here is actually to the 19, what is it, 56 Nobel Prize in physics. Which was? For the transistor. And so that's like nine years after the 47 paper with Bardeen and Britton in it. And there too, there was the feeling like, okay, this is the dawn of something that the science has been done. Now the shift is to engineering. You know, one transistor isn't that interesting. A million is very interesting. A billion that we have in our phones is extremely interesting. And so it was that shift to engineering that that Nobel Prize, I think, sort of had the landmark of. And I think that's what we're seeing with this CRISPR Nobel Prize as well. So that's basically why it matters. So let's actually talk about why should people care about this? It's not just an academic discovery. I think there's a lot of reasons why it matters. You know, number one, this is not just a discovery. This was very quickly transformed into a tool and a tool with multiple uses. And what I mean by that is the objective for a very, very long time, for decades, has been to come up with a precise way to edit DNA to help cure or at a minimum treat genetic disease. And, you know, when you compare CRISPR versus talons, zinc fingers, some of the other approaches, those are very unruly approaches, very cumbersome, difficult tools to use, whereas CRISPR has the potential to be much more of a precision instrument, much more broadly and readily usable, especially as we find ways to better engineer that machinery for that job. But it's not just for therapeutics that this is a big deal. As I'm sure you've seen, you know, in, in the case of COVID-19, there are many efforts to develop very rapid distributed diagnostics for the SARS-CoV-2 virus that use CRISPR technology to detect the virus, right? We've actually covered that on our show, Journal Club. Exactly. So in other words, use the machinery that bacteria use to detect the virus to actually power a diagnostic for us. So I think that's another example where this you know, discovery is relevant and important. And the last one I would say is we talk about this being an academic discovery. What's very important about CRISPR is that it actually transforms the way we do discovery in biology. And what I mean by that is for a very long time, when you wanted to 
understand a biological process or a disease process, you do what's called target identification, where you look for targets that you think are going to be relevant in a disease that you can develop a therapeutic against. So CRISPR is not just important for treating disease, as many people are doing, trying to develop CRISPR-based therapeutics, but it's also important in helping us study disease because you can use CRISPR to essentially knock out genes or edit genes or look at any combination of a set of genes by using its precision editing capabilities to get better and smarter at discovering targets that might be relevant for treating a disease. And from there, you can develop any number of ways to try to treat the disease, whether it's with a small molecule or with a biologic. But CRISPR itself has become a very important discovery tool for research and development. One of the things that's really important about what Jorge was mentioning is that it allows that whole process to become systematized. It used to be that you'd have to like, uh, you know, you'd have to sequence the gene or do some complicated set of experiments that now are replaced by just doing a database lookup because so many organisms' genomes have been sequenced and it's just trivial to do those things on the read side. Now the write side has gotten much more straightforward and systematized such you can write whatever you want in there within some limitations. But that's a dramatic change that we're shifting more and more from sort of this bespoke artisanal process to something that can be automated and industrialized. Right. So this is fascinating because I love analogies. Vijay, you alluded to the transistor analog from the 1956 Nobel Prize. And it's interesting because people always use the analogy of scissors to describe CRISPR as this precision gene editing tool. But what I'm really hearing both of you say is that's actually too limiting because it's a platform. It's not like a singular thing. And that there's so much more that can be built on top of this. CRISPR is a Swiss army knife. Oh, a Swiss army <laughs> knife. That's way better. The first tool they've pulled out is the little scissor. But, you know, it also has the little magnifying glass. and has all the <laughs> Oh my God, that's so good. So that's fantastic. So given that though, this is also where we need to tease apart what's hype, what's real. So people often talk about CRISPR in this breathless way, like we can do this, we can eliminate disease, we can create like better crops, we can wipe out pathogens, we can create, you know, CRISPR babies. And that was obviously a controversy that we don't need to go into in this episode. We've actually covered the moratorium aspect on a previous episode of 16 Minutes. But really what I'd love you both to do now is help me tease apart where we actually are right now. Like what can we do? What can't we do? What's possible? Yeah, so all the areas of CRISPR used for discovery and those tools, that's rolling and it's becoming a key part of what's there. So that's a checkbox there. Second, what we would call ex vivo CRISPR, where you would take cells out of a body. That appears to also be rolling reasonably well. And you could imagine that by taking cells out, you have a lot less complexity, that you're essentially bringing the cells to the CRISPR rather than CRISPR to the cells. And you can check your work. And you can check your work. No one's going to die if you screwed up. I loved Vijay's line of first you bring the cells to the CRISPR, (laughs) and then later you bring the CRISPR to the cells. That's a good line. I agree. It's a really good line. And that, from the ex vivo point of view, is very appealing. So now the last checkbox to talk about might be in vivo CRISPR. And that's kind of the dream that we all talk about, where you have some disease that's monogenic, which means that it's well-defined what the genomic origin of the disease is for this gene. In some cases, even just a single SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphic change is really responsible. And if you can just get rid of that, then your DNA will create the right proteins and you won't have the disease. It's very appealing, especially in diseases where 
it's just very complex. A lot of central nervous system diseases, CNS-related diseases, are very complicated to go after with small molecule drugs. You know, diseases like Alzheimer's or ALS or Parkinson's, often the genetic origin is very clear. Now the outstanding questions are not, do we know what genes to change and how to change them? It's, can we deliver CRISPR to the brain for CNS? That's going to be an interesting challenge. Can it have high enough efficacy? Can you make sure that it's not going to have off-target effects? That's not going to edit the things that you don't want to, to edit. You know, George Church famously referred to CRISPR as genetic vandalism. And I think it's a very mm. evocative term because it originated for bacteria to sort of cut up pathogenic DNA, not to edit it. And so now the challenge is, can we go from what nature evolved to help bacteria survive to editing human brains? And there, there are things left to do there, things left to engineer to make sure that we can address those issues. And we have to do all of that while evading the immune system, who, as you can imagine, when see something foreign like what CRISPR represents, it would have a high likelihood of trying to shut it down. This is a great point because a lot of the original CRISPR enzymes like Cas9 were derived from pathogenic bacteria. And so potentially there may be issues with the immune system. More recent CRISPR molecule discoveries came from other bacteria, which may not have those issues. Right. But where we are now, practically in practice, because this is a news show, not a research show, clinical trials, which is where we're talking about things actually getting close. So far, the early ones are only for treating sickle cell anemia, hereditary blindness, cancer. We've actually talked about clinical trials coming of age on this show and People can go back and listen to that. But that is technically where we are now. Like we're still quite a bit away from being able to do like the CNS system. I just want to make sure we're doing a very tight pulse check on what's hype, what's real or where we are now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the very first CRISPR therapies are entering the clinic is, is where we are now. And the right way to think about it is this is a very new technology. A Nobel Prize was just awarded for a discovery that was described less than 10 years ago. And it's yep. already in patients. It's already in clinical trials. Like that's a remarkable thing. That said, it's being developed for therapeutics in a very purposeful and careful way. So we are stepping into using this technology for treating disease. As you point out, we're first editing cells outside of the body. So we can control the edits that happen. We can QC the edits and make sure that the right edits were made, the wrong ones were not made before we put them back in the body. Quality control. Quality control, right? The next step is to go after privileged spaces, you know, in the eye and in other places where are viewed to be privileged in the sense that the machinery is likely to stay where you deliver it and not diffuse broadly. Right. And just to quickly pause on the significance of that, what you're really saying is that when you take it out of the body and you do all this kind of isolation and work on it, you know, precision focus, and then yep. put it back into the body, you don't have to worry about other unwieldy interaction effects, et cetera. So more self-contained, basically. More self-contained, exactly. And then the step beyond that is going to be to think about how can we deliver it more broadly into the body to make the edits with the precision and efficiency and care that next step is a very big step. And there's a lot of work that needs to take place to go from outside the body to the protected space in the body to go broadly diffused. 
my delivery is hard is that you don't want it to go everywhere in the body. Otherwise, the dosing would get high and the off targets would get high. You want to go to a specific organ or maybe even a specific cell type. Intriguingly, there's a whole nother area of engineering biology associated with actually another discovery, in this case, using often viruses to deliver in a very specific way. And often these two areas, the engineering of delivery and engineering of editing, naturally go hand in hand. Yeah, this is an area that's described as trying to engineer tropism, which is this idea that you can develop a delivery vehicle that will somehow know where to go within the body and avoid parts of the body where it isn't wanted or needed. That is a meaningful challenge because if you don't have that ability to target a specific cell type or a specific organ system, then that has implications for dosage, that has implications for the immune response, that has implications for potential toxicities. There are a lot of factors that come into play. So that is a very important area of focus and development right now. That will be a necessary step to really deliver on the ultimate promise for this kind of technology for treating a broad range of genetic diseases. Okay. So now what are some of the practical considerations for startups, big companies? What are the broader implications for the industry? So short term, this is not going to be the ability to program human DNA at will. As people engineer these systems, go after the low-lying fruit first, the areas that are easy to deliver, the areas where the genetic origin is super strong. But in time, it could be going to areas where small molecule drugs are just a poor choice to go after disease. You know, why would you even do a small molecule if you could do all these other things accurately, safely, effectively, and with reasonable cost? A lot of approaches now that go after genetic origins like ASOs or other approaches are really quite expensive. Maybe in time, this can also decrease costs as well. And that's a lot of ifs that have to be worked out. I think as advice, what this Nobel Prize is reminding people is that we have made the transition from discovery to design towards an engineering approach. And so if you want to be a company that is going to succeed in this space, starting to have an engineering mindset is going to be critical because that is the way that people will take where we are now and really turn to something that would be really helpful for patients. Yeah, from a practical advice standpoint, one of the factors that has overshadowed CRISPR-Cas9's discovery from the very beginning was the fight and litigation over the patent rights. And that is obviously a very long and complicated process. It still is yet to be entirely unwound. And that, for folks working in the space, has real practical implications. So if today I'm working on a startup and I want to license IP, whether it's for an R&D use case or a diagnostic use case, there's a bit of a hairball there in figuring out, well, who do I license from, you know, given the ongoing battle? Do I take all the licenses? Is one enough? So that's unresolved area. And I'm optimistic that'll get resolved over time. But today it is certainly a source of uncertainty. The second thing that I think is important to note from a practical standpoint is that innovation here is happening at a absolute torrid clip. And so, you know, Cas9 was the beginning. It stands for CRISPR-associated protein 9. That's the Cas9. But there are other Cas's. There's Cas5 and, you know, there are many other ones, CasX, CasY, that have been since discovered and developed. And it's the actual protein that plays the role in bacteria for the immunological defense that we've described. But other Cas's that have emerged each have their own distinct features and functionality. To Jorge's point, the issues that we see in CAS9 can be potentially resolved by these other CAS systems, including potentially the IP infringement. So we're just at the beginning stages, the early stages where we're moving to next generation and onward. 
Well, when I joke about this being a Swiss army knife, CRISPR is very much is a Swiss army knife in the sense that we see sort of a new application or a new tool being developed virtually every day. You've got, you know, base editors and you've got, you know, cast systems that do double-stranded breaks and single-stranded breaks and all kinds of other changes in the space. And so if I'm an innovator or an entrepreneur in the space, I have to have very, very broad 360 degree vision because it's a landscape that is evolving incredibly quickly. And the right feature and functionality set today could be made obsolete or overshadowed by a new development using these approaches tomorrow. One way to think about CRISPR broadly is it's less a specific tool, it's more a platform. And it's a platform in that we are already seeing, you know, various different applications built on top of and around it that serve all kinds of different purposes, some for discovery, some for inserting large pieces of DNA, some for obviously making very precise edits, you know, some for working not just on nuclear DNA, but also recently we've seen work so you can edit mitochondrial DNA. So it very much becomes sort of a platform ecosystem on which novel applications will be built. And I think that's one of the great promises of this discovery is that it has such long legs and is going to give rise to so many different potential applications. It's something that begets itself continuously, just like genetics. Okay, you guys, so bottom line it for me. How should we think about this news of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry being awarded to the two scientists who discovered CRISPR? So look, there are a couple of things here that are worth noting. You know, number one is we're celebrating discovery with a Nobel Prize that was made less than 10 years ago, already in clinical trials to help treat patients with disease. If that doesn't tell you that, you know, innovation in biology has the potential to accelerate and compound in meaningful ways, I don't know what does. The second thing I would say is it's remarkable that at this moment in time, when we're dealing with a global viral pandemic, we're also celebrating the fact that we were able to harness bacteria's ability to fight off viruses, to help augment our ability to fight off a virus, whether it's detecting the disease, maybe even treating it, and then expanding that to not only treat against viruses, but to treat a broad range of diseases that you know impact us as a human race. I don't think it's unlikely that we don't see more recognition for CRISPR in Nobel Prizes in the future, specifically in a Nobel for physiology or medicine, to recognize the work and the potential for this technology in treating human disease. And I think that's a remarkable sort of mile marker in the long journey to achieve that goal. It is a remarkable story. That's amazing. Vijay, tell me your bottom line. Yeah, I'm just thrilled for Jennifer. I've known her for maybe about 20 years. We worked on, I was an academic on grants for just even the fundamental basic biophysics of RNA. And moving from that to being on a board with her right now with one of our portfolio companies, Scribe, I'm just thrilled. Thrilled that this really critically important discovery from basic research has so rapidly had impact, so rapidly getting to the point where it's in patients and yet has so much runway to go that I bet will be a part of the way we think about things for decades, the way we think about transistors as being the underlying aspects of compute for decades. Yeah, no, this is incredible. In fact, one of my favorite things, just to close out this episode, is that the story is that she was really sound asleep when her buzzing phone worker, (laughs) it was because she took a call from the nature reporter who broke the news. And she said, I grew up in a small town in Hawaii and never in a million years 
never in a hundred million years would have imagined this happening. I'm really stunned. I'm just completely in shock. And I think this is an incredible milestone on so many levels. So thank you, you guys, so much for joining 16 Minutes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And by the way, congratulations to Jennifer and Emmanuel. This is incredible. It's remarkable. Congratulations. Jennifer and Emmanuel, congratulations. We're so thrilled for you. Happy birthday, Sonal. Happy birthday. Thank you, guys.